This is an SBC Media Partners production. Swung on, hit high and deep. Right field. Good at feet. Good at feet. It is out of Phillies fans, these are your glove stories with Murph. Let's check in with Greg Murphy. Murph, you got a special guest, huh? Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Glove Stories with Murph, presented by the Parks Casino Sportsbook app and Red Robin. And our guest today was a first-round draft pick back in 1991. He spent nine seasons in the big league, six with the Philadelphia Phillies. And since his retirement in 2004, well, I think it's safe to say he has kept himself busy, a writer, broadcaster, speaker, blogger, author, podcaster, just a respected voice, not just in the world of baseball, but beyond that as well. It is our honor and our privilege to welcome in Doug Glanville to the program. Doug, good to see you. All right, Murph. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's been a minute, so uh, good to catch up. It has up. been a minute. Yeah, <laughs> it has. Well, it's certainly good to see you and uh, really excited to kind of uh, delve in and, and, and hear your glove stories because, you know, baseball has been such a, a big part of your life. It continues to be a big part of your life, but just a part of it, uh, you know, uh, an important part in, uh, for sure. But uh, Teaneck, New Jersey, you grew up uh, just outside of New York City. And uh, Phillies fans will obviously remember your time in uniform with the Philadelphia Phillies, but your connection to the Phillies started way before you ever got drafted into the big leagues and put on that uniform, right? Because of the uniform. Am I right about that? (laughs) Literally because of the uniform. Um, It did. It started pretty early. And I have to credit my brother on this. My brother is almost eight years older and he loves sports right away. And my, my parents, given my dad was from Trinidad and Tobago, he was more of a cricket guy, uh, but <laughs> baseball was a natural translation. So my brother got into baseball and my parents kind of came on board. And then when I was, when I came along, he, he's like, Oh, I got a, I got a pet project now. So, uh, so of course being that young and my brother being like 11, 12, he got me into to baseball and it was really about the cool uniforms. Cause that's, I was all about, you know, colors sure. at that age. And, you know, that, that powder blue, that baby blue flavor, really those road uniforms kind of hooked me. And, uh, you know, I think that was a starting point. And, and certainly being in New Jersey, we had the Yankees and the Mets. So I had both American League and National League to consider. But I gravitated towards the National League style of play. And I remember back in the day, the Phillies pitchers could really hit. I mean, you had... Larry Christensen and Steve Carlton and Randy Lurch. I mean, they were like, they were full blown hitters. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so it was a, it was a good time. And, but yeah, literally it was the uniform that got it started. Yeah. I wonder how many, how many people got hooked by those powder blues. You know, they're obviously they're back now. The guys are wearing them again. And, you know, I grew up yeah. in South Jersey and I remember you and I are about the same age watching those guys play in those powder blues. You, you couldn't help but love it. Uh, so it's good to know that it's pulling people in from all over the place. Uh, we, we like to hear that. Uh, it, was baseball, was baseball, you, you mentioned your brother and, and it being a pet project for him and getting you involved, but were there other sports too, or was baseball always your focus in, in, in terms of athletics? Well, there was definitely other sports and we saw the world in a seasonal way being in Jersey. So, you know, the winter would roll around and we just like to compete. And once I was old enough to kind of hold my own a little bit, at least in wiffle ball against my brother, <laughs> then, you know, it was all bets are off. We were, we were just going to compete all year round in anything, tiddlywinks, you know, <laughs> whatever. So, yes. uh, but he was a great big brother because he kept showing me the game. And I always was drawn to baseball because 
not only the daily impact, right? Every day there's games, but I love the strategy, the lineups and the, and bunting and the, making those decisions and the engineering mind in me connected yes. very well. So my mom was a math teacher. So that sort of helped connect those dots. So no question baseball was my first love with, with sports, even though I did enjoy, you know, all the other sports during the full kind of course of the season, but uh, baseball was number one. Yeah, it's funny. If I had a dime for every professional athlete who credits their older brother and their friends, you know, for, for making them the athlete they are, because that younger brother just wants to play with those guys, compete with those guys, be better than those guys. And uh, at what point did you, did you ever get to the point in your younger days where you were, you were beating your brother in, in, <laughs> on a daily basis? Well, tell, my brother is the stickball king. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know that you take a long broomstick, oh, yes. you put tape on it and I have a tennis ball. Uh, I don't know if I ever beat him in stickball, but uh, <laughs> wiffle ball. Yeah, I was, I held my own, but yeah, the moment, one of the big moments that sort of, I think of is there was a summer league team. So I grew up in Teaneck and, uh, but we live right on the river mm-hmm. and that's the Hackensack river. So on the other side of the river is Hackensack, New Jersey, technically where I was born. Now they're a rival. So I try not to talk about that. <laughs> so, um, so Hackensack, I ended up playing uh, summer league. And there was a year where I was kind of coming into the age for this big league that had like 30 teams and they were mostly, you know, older groups, you know, 18 and up, but I was like 15 and I decided to kind of chart my own way and not play with my brother because I I didn't think I was going to start. They kept saying, well, you might play here and there. And this other team said, you'll you'll be a starter. So I decided on my own when I could barely drive to, to go my own direction and uh and i think even then i was getting rides and my brother was kind of upset because he was like oh you know we're not playing together but i wanted to be my own starter so finally one day we played against each other <laughs> so yes uh and i had a f- phenomenal game hit a home run hit like four hits and then he i played at third base if you can imagine and at one point he, he rolled one over to me and i had all this time and i patted my glove <laughs> And then I fired across the diamond and I was like, wait a minute, you know, I'm on the same field. So that was the first time we really played against each other. And uh, I, I was you know, really motivated to do well. So I, I have great memories of how he pushed me because he was a great supporter, but also just the challenge of competing either against or with him that always kind of got the best out of us. It's funny. So you were a free agent uh, back at 15 years old and you, you signed your first free agent deal. Exactly. <laughs> Getting it done early. I like that. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, so you, so you get through the, the high school years and then obviously the university of Pennsylvania uh, education, a big part of your family, uh, what your parents were instilling in you. And, and obviously something that you took very uh, seriously as well, y- your time at Penn, you know, y- you are a student athlete for sure in the Ivy leagues uh, you guys had had very good teams with, with success. You played very well, obviously. Uh, what do you remember about those days? Was it a tough balance for you in terms of school and, and baseball? You know, I, I was fortunate because my high school was, you know, exceptional in terms of the offerings. We had a lot of advanced placement classes. My mom was a teacher in the school system. And so I came to Penn with a little bit of an advantage. I had, I think four AP credits that I used. So what it allowed me to do is in the spring during baseball season, I could take one less course. And as an engineer, that's usually five courses a semester. So I took four in the spring. So that gave me a chance to kind of adjust, you know, to the tougher engineering curriculum. 
And, uh, and I, you know, so that made me, you know, balance a little bit better uh, the baseball side of it. So with the Ivy League, we didn't play the 70-game schedule. We had like a 40-game schedule. Most of them were crammed in on the weekends. And then we play during the week, Villanova, whoever. But the league right. games were doubleheaders on Saturday, doubleheaders on Sunday. <laughs> so so it was, it was very condensed. And I think I did fairly well with adjusting to figuring how to, how to balance but um, but certainly the academics was was tough and an adjustment as any freshman goes through right you, you're like what right. is this you know yes. so uh, but yeah but I I had you know good support and fortunately living in Philly as a student I was only you know less than two hours from home so I could reset my parents came down my brother so I didn't you know feel like estranged from anybody I think that helped and of course my parents were like look you can go to school in this radius right here <laughs> I want you going to Cali. And, right. you know, and baseball wise, recruiting wise, I was mostly getting East Coast recruiting. So um, that kind of also made it easier. Do, do you remember days that you guys go down to the vet, you and your teammates? Did you go down and watch the fills and, and think to yourself, hey, I'd like to play here 10 years from now kind of thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was I mean, people said the reason I went to Penn was because of the Phillies and they're probably partially true. Right. <laughs> but um, I uh, I do. Well, one of my first of my first road trip with my driver's license was to Veterans Stadium. There you <laughs> so go. That's a, that tells you all you need to know. <laughs> but um, but in, in the college days, I do remember a day where I met Dick Allen, Richie Ashburn, and they had my name on the sign. I still have the pictures of that with uh, my wow. pen jacket. And it was sort of welcome, Doug Glanville. So that was awesome because I was I was just such a huge Phillies fan. And, you know, those were days of like, you know, Ricky Jordan, Ken, Ken Howell, Darren Dalton, early days. So, um, you know, they didn't have great years until like 93, but there was, uh, it was still so much fun because I could just go to the park. I'd take the train and, you know, go to these Phillies games. So yeah. I, I was totally in heaven. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet. Now I was a senior in college in 93 over at St. Joe's. So around the corner from you. And uh, I remember that as well, you know, going over down to the ballpark, the team wasn't very good in 91 and 92, but it didn't matter. It was a fun place to be with, uh, with your, your teammates and your, and your buddies from school for sure. Um, so then of course, one of the, the big days in any ball player's life, is the day that uh, you hear your name uh, in draft. Now you're a first round pick uh, and you hear Chicago Cubs. What do you remember about that day? Were you, were you back in Teaneck? Were you back with the family waiting for the phone call kind of thing? Yes, I was in Teaneck and certainly wanted to share it with family. And I, you know, I came back, I think I was coming back from Penn. I, you know, semester was over, might've been doing some, some stuff there. And I came back. And yeah, it was a huge celebration. In a lot of ways, it was also a relief because you have to think about going up until that date. There's a lot of screening that's done, scouting and on camera, you know, agents trying to call you and negotiations that you can't really have. And, all that. you know, it was, it was, and then plus I'm trying to, you know, do my thing in school grades and working hard on it as a junior engineering student. So that was like the toughest semesters. So it was, um, it sort of put to test a lot of the balancing acts that I had to learn that were more about managing your time than anything else. And, um, and so for me, although I suspected I'd go somewhere around the Cubs in the 12th pick, there was possibilities I could go sooner and, and, you know, just the stress of kind of like what's going to happen. But so I'd say, although I was like, yes, I have a uniform now, uh, I, I was kind of relieved that I didn't have to kind of go through all the, 
the screening and the constant questioning and the scoutings and the psychological tests. And I mean, that was going on for like a year. And wow. so, so that part was, was intense, but um, the other side of it is I get drafted. And then at first they're like, Oh, the Cubs must be so happy. So they're telling the world, Oh, this guy is great. This guy's amazing. He's the best player of all time. And then as soon as the, the spotlight shines off you, they start negotiating and then they tell you how terrible you are. <laughs> like, it's like, you can't do this. You can't do that. Why should we pay you? So uh, that was a little eye opening. Um, but the other side of it is the media, managing the media. Right. That was really difficult because I was 20 and I just didn't understand this concept of people talking about me and concluding these things about me would never have met me. That was such a weird concept to me. And I was like, how could Peter Gammon say that? I can't believe, you know, whatever it was. And <laughs> I remember that kind of bothering me to the point I had to create a speech uh, because being a pen guy, there was questions about, well, what are your priorities? Do you really want to play ball? Because you're at this Ivy League school, you only play 40 games a year. Uh, that was, so I had to come up with a speech for them to say, I'm committed to the next level. Did you ever ask Peter Gammons why he said that all those things about you? <laughs> you know, I, I know I did at some point and I, I do bring it up from time to time, but I, I know he had to do his job. But it, exactly. the question I think he posed in it was the Boston Globe. He said, you know, you know, great talent, blah, blah, blah. But some question whether he wants to play. <laughs> Something, and I think it was it was just tough to but we all had our our labels that we yeah. have to shake. So that was mine. Yeah. And, 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 and that's a perfect segue into the label of a first round pick. You, you, now you head into professional ball and uh, you are, are being paid to play baseball, but as a first round pick, there's a lot of pressure there. Even at the lowest levels of the minor league, people are watching you. They're expecting things from you. Uh, was your minor league days. Do you remember them as, as um, good days, bad days, a little bit of both? H how do you, uh, how do you look at your time that you spent in the minor leagues, especially the lower part of the minor leagues? Cause it can be a grind. It, you know, it was, it was tough. Uh, I gotta say the, you know, as soon as you get drafted, I was drafted. I negotiated hard, didn't sign for six weeks. And then I got sent to Niagara Falls. My, my team was Geneva in the New York Penn league, but we were on the road. And I remember them right away kind of hazing me, you know, running with the pitchers, getting, quote, in shape, even though I'd played in the new, the Met League for the whole summer, right? Yeah. So uh, so that was tough. And I was like, wow, wh what did I walk into, right? And yeah. I remember having these, like, hamstring wraps to try to keep my hamstrings from, like, pulling. And the trainer was like, you got to get off those things. You got to work hard, you know, get, you know. So, and then meeting the legendary Jimmy Pearsall, who pretty much starts off by yelling at you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Jimmy was, came a great friend and a great advocate, but we, we were like oil and water. So I think the adjusting to just what it means to be a professional, I think that mm -hmm. for me was tough. I didn't go to this, you know, manu factory of baseball. I went to a school that wasn't as, it wasn't as much of a priority, which I actually appreciated. Right. So it took time to understand like, okay, wood bats and breaking bats and ordering bats and, and just how to show up on time and uh, cook for yourself, whatever. It was just different. And um, and I think each level was a different experience. New York Penn League, then I went to the Carolina League, which was awesome, but also what, playing every day, 144 games, are these people crazy? Like that was like, I remember my mom saw me after the 92 season and like was in near tears because I'd lost 25 pounds. Right. I was 158 pounds at the end of the season and I was six foot one or two. So, um, yeah, so th those were kind of shocked to the system, but 
Um, I think that as I got more mature and understood how to be a professional and really fight for it and the fact that baseball was at the center, I started to learn how to to deal with it better. But um, but I think, you know, I was a little bit of a fish out of water, the Ivy League kid, um, you know, trying to play with these guys and, and fit in and also just respect the game and knowing there's a lot of different opinions. And then there's a, the pressure, I guess, if you want to call it, of being a first rounder. Yeah. Everybody is watching you. And even your own teammates are like, well, this guy's not that good. How do you get drafted? For, like you're, you know, and, and you learn this, that you're competing, not just the team in the other dugout, but you're fighting for spots within your own organization. So it, although it's generally friendly competition, you know, you do, you know, you want to, you, you got to show your own and, sure. Um, so I, there was there was some growing pains, and but I think by the time I got to AAA in Des Moines, Iowa, you know I, the big thing for me was playing in the Arizona Fall League, and the biggest thing was playing in Puerto Rico in winter right. ball because that's where I gained the confidence, the validation, everything. I won the MVP award, we won the championship. I mean, it was like a, it was like I got a lot of hardware down there, and I kind of realized like they can't stop me. There's, you know, my triple A manager and I were like at war right. and, you know, it was, it was a nightmare quite frankly, but I, but I was able to focus on the game and the career. And I didn't, I started not letting those exterior factors take away from, from, you know, my goal. And I think that was, you know, Tom Gamboa, my, you know, I got to give him a lot of credit, Sandy Alomar senior, just mentors that kept whispering to me. Now, no, you can do this. You got to keep going. So, um, but I love the, the towns, the fans were great all over, sold out Des Moines, Iowa, Winston-Salem. There is a certain purity about the minors that I always appreciated. Uh, I, Bull Dorm is one of my favorite movies and I just, <laughs> I just feel it hits my soul because it's so familiar. And um, yeah, so, I mean, it was, but I, but I made it, you know, and I know that it's, it's not easy. Like a lot of guys don't and i think right. their stories need to be told more because it's hard and i had a first round pick advantage so i got a lot of um bonus benefits from that yeah you know it's interesting and and not to i don't want to harp on on the the difficult parts but it, you know i was in, getting ready for the interview I, I read about your story about ron clark and and how things between you guys at AAA were tough on you and you started playing the game of baseball you almost you can't allow those outside influences to affect you because you start to play tentatively, play baseball tentatively, then you're not playing it well. And, and, and you talked a little bit about how that kind of all kind of piled up on you. And, and it all stemmed from uh, an argument you guys had when he was a, a Rover. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I, 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 yeah, that's a great point. The, um, you know, I realized one fundamental thing, like it's, it is beautiful to thank all these supporters in your career. You, you have to, you appreciate it. But I also learned later that you kind of have to thank your detractors too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, the ones that may, first, you may not always know their motivation. Maybe they are pushing you mm -hmm. and maybe they just don't want you to succeed, but there is something that centers you around. Okay. How bad do you really want this? And Ron Clark was kind of that guy for me. Uh, we met, he was a roving uh, instructor and I, I, I think I missed him that spring training because I was in a big league camp. So they, they sent me to double A and, and so I didn't know him. And then the day he came to town to observe, I got called in the office after the game and there was a play, a blooper to center field in it. And Craig Griffey was in center. He's a really good center fielder, Ken's brother. And uh, so I kind of hesitated between first and second. I went to second. That was it. But I, you know, he thought I should have been at third. 
And because that was my introduction, it wasn't like, hi, my name is Ron Clark. It was like, you should have been a third. I'm like, who is this guy? So yeah. I responded like that and he really didn't take it well. Um, and I, you know, challenged, I was like, well, this is the read I got, right? So, um, but he held, I think he held that grudge. And when I got to AAA, he was my manager and it was, it was a bad situation. Uh, I, um, I actually had two pages. I had a document, you know, I have an agent, so I'm complaining. And I wrote down and I had a incident reports and there were literally two full pages back and forth. Um, the most famous, I guess, was when I not only did I get kicked out of the game, I got kicked out of the stadium. So uh, <laughs> I was on first and I had to steal second. Uh, it was a, it was we had an automatic steal on three one and three two counts. So okay. the umpire at home was not demonstrative at all. Like he was really quiet on his strike calls. So we were like, always like, does that, so I'd look at the scoreboard. Everybody was doing this. So there's a two, one pitch. The ball goes through, looks like a ball scoreboard has three, one. I asked the first base umpire. He has three, one coach has three, one. So I'm like, good. I'm going to steal. Next pitch goes in, looks like ball four. Turns out it's ball three. <laughs> so I go in a second standing up and they tag me out. I'm like, what's going on? And he meets me on the field. Like I couldn't even get off the field. And he says, you know, you know, he's just screaming at me. And he's like, I don't want you to just get out of the game. You just go home to the, you know, just get out of the stadium. So he kicked me out of the stadium. We were in Buffalo. So um, I was like, okay, this is bad. But so, but once again, that Puerto Rico thing, which I can't say enough about the people, right. the support, the culture, the way I was embraced as family was completely transformational. Uh, I became untouchable in my mind about whether you're a detractor, I just had my own, my focus. That's awesome. And that, that's what changed everything for me. And, and so, you know, Clarky and I, the next year I actually go, had to go back to AAA and we we didn't really patch it up, but we kind of had a understanding. Uh, he still, when I got called up, he didn't say anything rosy. He just said, don't make the mistakes up there as you did down here. Or you'll be back here. That was my welcome to the big league. And then, but I, you know, I got called up again at the end of the season. I kind of stone faced him on it. Uh, I, the, the thing is when I got sent down, I got called up 96, got sent back down. And he was kind of waiting for me, kind of, I told you so kind of thing. And I wasn't even really that upset. I mean, I should have been more maybe, but I think I was thinking, wow, I really love to play. And in Chicago, I was kind of on the bench and this is not great. So I really want to play and become a starter. And so I came back kind of focused. So I got, I started off like 11 for 14 or so. It was unbelievable. Came back to AAA, batting average went up 30 points in like seven days. So, and then I got thrown out at home on a play that I thought I was safe. And he used that to say like, you're not a big league player right in the dugout. So that was the first time I kind of snapped on authority in my entire career. And uh, they had to separate us. I didn't throw a punch, but that was the moment where I, and our hitting coach was Glenn Adams. What a wonderful guy. He said, you know, he always tried to smooth thing over and whisper to me, you're going to do fine. And I said, Glenn, I know you're trying to smooth this over. I, I just can't talk to this guy anymore. Like I'm, I'm done. And uh, so he, he pre-respected that and I didn't talk to him. And then he had to call, tell me I was going up in September and I literally stone faced him. And, and so the, one of the coaches says, you don't seem very excited to go back to the big leagues. I said, no, I have a point. So, uh, so it was tough, but the, the running joke was Frank Viola was making a comeback in AAA. Okay. And uh, he's playing for the Reds and they threw 
you know, I had a great changeup. So I was cheating, leaning over the plate. And then he threw a fastball up and in, and I couldn't get out of the way. And I got hit in the head and the helmet fell off and I was disoriented. So I go to first and Clark was the third base coach. So he comes in or he might've been on the bench or whatever, but he comes over to the, to the check. And the joke was that he wanted to make sure the helmet wasn't cracked. <laughs> so yes. so uh, we don't want to lose any equipment. <laughs> yeah. So, but oh, Clarky, cool. I, to, to Clarky, I do thank you. I know we were kind of, we were oil and water, yeah. but I, I do realize that it was part of my growth and I don't think I would have been where I was without him, even if it wasn't, even if he wasn't like my supporter, I think it still right. was important to me. So that's what I'm yeah, saying. I think that's probably true. And in, in all walks of life, you know, you, you, you do need those people to challenge you, even if they do it in a way that's uncomfortable for you. Sometimes uh, it, they, they help you. They help you grow just as much as the people that are propping you up for sure. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's awesome to hear because, you know, baseball men, you hear that term um, about, you know, about guys of, you know, baseball lifer, gruff, we, we, you know, we've had guys that are, have been like that here in Philly. I think of a guy like John Vukovic, who if you knew John and you got you were around John, you, John was beloved by the people who were close to him. But if you didn't know him, he could be very gruff and he could be have that that rough exterior. And you would think, oh, my gosh, I, I don't want to be near this guy. But, it, you know, for John and for so many other baseball men and, you know, you played for a guy, Larry Boa, fiery personality that that you know, that's what they bring to the table. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not, but in the end, you know, it, it's all important, right? Well, and in the end, I, I love those guys because when I was a fan, they were the keepers, the stewards of the sport. And, and so Boa, Vukovic, you know, of course you have the reality check of now they're your coaches versus like the, the ideal. But I, I came in with such a deference to who they were, what they accomplished, and, uh, and the fact that, you know, they are still in the game because they love it and they, they want p people to be successful and they have their style. So I realized that the eighties was, was tough. People used gigantic bats and, you know, it was just a different planet, right? They were rough and tumble group. And I came with this sort of Ivy league thing, you know, so I, it took a while to kind of see through that, you know, I wanted this, right. And I love this game and I still love this game, but I, that, that, I thought took time for people to see because I have a nonchalant kind of style, mm -hmm. but I, um, I think it was good to win over some of those legends because I saw them as legends. So Vuk was great. He was like a second, he was a father figure and, um, yeah. you know, he really helped me a lot. And, uh, and I always think there's always guys like Vuk or others that they are gruff, but then they pull you aside and then you see the care, you know, that you see that other side. Uh, I think that was was Vuk. You know, he um, would say, "Oh, we're, don't get caught up in La La Land here in L.A. You got to play ball. Don't get caught up." And then he kind of <laughs> pull you aside. You know, so uh, pull you so aside. I, say, Where are you headed tonight? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So yeah. So those guys were you know yeah. really important. I mean, so and as a Philly fan, I was over the moon. Truly, no doubt, no doubt. Hey, so you, you obviously you debut with the Cubs, um, and uh, you were with them for two seasons. But then you do you get traded over to Philadelphia in the off season, uh, before the '98 season, I think it was right. Uh, you right, come over, yeah. and that uh, you're going to be a part of the Phillies, who at the time were not a very good team. They weren't playing good baseball at the time. But I was looking back at the rosters, that team. You know, when you you go down individual talent wise, there was a lot of talent in Philadelphia 
in 98, 99, 2000, when you, when you were part of the rosters, I mean, not just yourself, but, but other guys as well. Bobby Abreu was there, uh, right. The uh, Levy, I think came late in your yeah. tenure with the Phils. Uh, Scott Rowland was there. Uh, so Chilling, you know, yeah, what do you, I mean, when, really. when you got there to Philadelphia and you looked around that clubhouse, did you think to yourself, okay, I'm, I'm with the team that I grew up loving. This is a dream come true. And we've got a chance here as you looked around. Oh yeah. I mean, well, first I was excited. Uh, the trade, I mean, it wasn't, it was a tough time initially because my grandfather had passed away within 24 hours of the trade, but I knew that I had a better opportunity to be a starter in Philly. Right. And, um, and so that was exciting. And like you said, the names on the paper uh, outside of Lenny Dykstra, cause I was like, I gotta beat this guy out, you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, I was like, all right, Lenny, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was an opportunity. The difference between Philly and the Chicago situation was the Cubs was a senior veteran group. So I was a young guy who was like, don't say anything, just do your job. But then I went to Philly and I was part of a core where I was kind of part of the younger group, the new wave, I guess. And so I kind of had a lot more room to breathe and say and, and sort of be, a, you know, switch to more leadership role. I was a union rep, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but I was a super talented team. And, you know, I know we struggled more on the sort of pitching defense side, but, you know, watching Kurt pitch every, every other, every fifth day and, being in center field, you know, you always saw like, gosh, we have a chance to, to do something, but we, unfortunately we hit the Braves year in, year out. And they, you know, they just had, as we know, now we can say a cavalcade of hall of fame pitchers, mm -hmm. but then they were just Cy Young winners. And, you know, it was just tough to score off those guys, you know? And, and so they were always just, just a little bit better, but uh, I, you know, I enjoyed those guys. Libby, I still keep in touch with all these cats, Marlon, Jimmy, you yep. know, uh, you know, it's just a, it was a joy. They were a good group of people, a lot of fun. And Terry Francona was the manager when you first got over to Philadelphia. And, you know, it's so funny because you look back and you, you, you know, now how, uh, impactful Terry Francona can be inside a clubhouse. And, uh, you know, he was a young manager at the time, his first managerial job. Uh, what was, what was that relationship like, you know, in terms of was, I mean, he was very much a player's kind of manager, was he not? He was, and he was such a good fit for me because he was really positive. You know, I played for Jim Wiggleman, yeah. Dusty, you know, guys that are just like, that was always, a, that's, that was, that spoke to me better. Um, but I had learned how to play to different personalities and respect different personalities. But Terry was like patient. He understood we were growing. He was positive. And the only time he'd had to get on anybody is, is lack of hustle. You know, he didn't, you, you know, if he'd make a mental mistake, he'd call, you know, but it was, if you played hard, and worked hard. He was like, cool, I'm good with you. And so Tito, buddy, I know he was learning the sort of X's and O's more yeah. at the time. You know, like he knew how to manage people. Now it was a matter of getting the bullpen and, and sort of strategy. And that's what he was sort of coming into his own. And I know we just had a, we kind of regressed in 2000. And so he, you know, he lost his job and that was tough because I remember there was a memo in our locker room chairs in Miami or Florida when he lost his job because the story had leaked out. And so it was something like Francona to be fired at the end of the season. And we had like yeah. three games left. I remember and to that. his credit, he literally said, no, I'm going to manage the rest of the season. He didn't like walk out. He just managed. And I think our pitching coach, I think it might've been Galen Cisco. One of the po coaches refused to coach the rest of the season because he was so upset that the story had leaked out and that, you know, Francona like didn't, I mean, maybe he knew, but it, it wasn't like a front facing um, communication uh, through Galen Cisco's eyes. So 
so that told me a lot about him. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm here to the duration, whatever happened. So, and I was really happy for his success uh, since that point. Me but, uh, you know, I keep in touch with Tito and, and, but yeah, he was, he was fun. A lot of fun. He'd, he'd get on you. Uh, and I remember Bobby Abreu one time, he, he'd fine everybody. It'd be like $250 for whatever being late. And Bobby was kind of late a lot. So, <laughs> so he was like, Abreu, you, I want 250 on my desk. Tomorrow, you got to get that money. So he's like, okay, cool. So he goes in and leaves $2 and 50 cents right <laughs> and and then when francona tried to challenge him abreu acted like he didn't speak much english he's like <laughs> no entiendo okay what the, come on, it's like, two, 250 right and so francona's all flustered like he doesn't understand man he was just, oh my he's like and he was just like i'll just play with you man <laughs> <laughs> that's so, tremendous that's oh tremendous well so then the next year um francona is let go and then and larry ball comes in and and all of a sudden you know this team is in contention i mean i jimmy that was jimmy's first year if i'm not yeah, mistaken Jimmy's, yeah yeah so i mean you you had guys coming in there was some new talent on that team but uh what was the big difference do you think in that year for for the phils because you know up in, into september the team had a chance yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I have to give Larry Boa some credit here. Uh, I think he brought in a no holds bar approach to say, you guys are talented. You should just win, you know, and first thing he did was I'm going to first of all, it was the dress code, right? He attacked the dress code. Frank was like, I don't care. You want to wear ripped shirts. So, you know, he didn't care. And I was like, I appreciated that. But it was like, you got to look like professionals. So he had us wear suits, collared shirts, you know? So we had a whole different kind of approach. You want to look like champions, win like champions, be champions. I, I think that helped. And the fire and the intensity uh, was definitely something that was a complete 180. And sometimes just being that turnaround guy, the culture shift, you know, you can get a lot out of guys. And I think he he did. Uh, it was intense. It was tough. I mean, you you couldn't, you know, sit down for a second. You had to know, like, you know, Bo was on the tornado. And the thing about Bo was, I don't I don't think he was, he wasn't confrontational. And, and like, I, I know that he's perceived as like in your face. He was much more like, he had more of an oblique approach to it, I'd say. He kind of, I mean, he'd take on the press and the umpires and things like that and the game itself. But I think for the most part, when he, he dealt with you, he, he's more kind of off to the side um, or he'd say it through another Avenue. Like right. he just had a yeah. different, another coach or, you know, and in fact, one year he, he said, there's too much negativity coming out of the media. I'm taking all the newspapers out of the locker room, except for USA today, for some reason. So that was it. So Jim Tomey was on that team and he's like, okay, so, you know, so don't bring up all the stuff or quotes that he said, or someone said, and I'm sure sometimes he said things in the paper for strategy, right? I mean, sure. You know, fire people up. So it took time and, but I know it, it's hard to burn that hot for that long over that many seasons. I'm sure it's really tough, especially thing, in, yeah. in, a, in a game like baseball. Uh, but I, but I think he, I think when he came in, uh, it was just like a, it was sort of a turning of the guard, a changing of the guard in a way that we responded to. I, I, we're, I know we're running out of time, but I do want to ask you about this uh, in terms of being a, a center fielder, because I was, again, I was reading some, some different things and you talk about playing center field to me in a way that I I've never really heard anybody else. I'm sure other folks have thought this, but you, you kind of put it out there about how you, 
or the view from center field allowed you to use your brain as well as your athletic talent to, to be the best kind of player you were. You, you kind of looked at everything. You read pitches, you read swings, you read, you know, your right fielder and your left fielder. And all of that came into, it was like analytics for yourself early on. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I think it's a fascinating way of, of that position is such an important position in baseball and you played it as, as well as anybody, you know, at the time. And, and I just love the way you described how you, how you went about your business. Yeah. Well, first I love defense. You know, I really love to take away hits yeah. and to be a step ahead. It is a, an aspect of anticipation that was really fun. Jimmy Pearsall got to give a lot of credit to him because he had us out there early, making sure that we had jumps on every pitch. Don't take any pitch. If there's a foul ball, I want to see you moving. I want you yeah. moving, leaning. You know, he and then the studying part was right up my alley to know the patterns of you know the spray charts. And now it's all computerized, but we had paper and we, you know, map this out so we knew you know how to move with each pitcher. And then then when the game rolls around, you have to really decide, make decisions based on what you're seeing. So, you know, Schilling's on the mound, fastball away. He's going to hit his spot. And he's throwing hard enough, right-handed hitter. I'm going to start leaning that way, unless the report tells me other. So you, you have these instincts, and then you have to be the captain. And a lot of it is spacing, right? You're keeping a consistent spacing, moving kind of as one, mm -hmm. knowing the situation, reading the scoreboard. And, and I love that anticipation. So often I'd get these jumps, and I was already taken off before – the ball's hit. And I, you know, I kind of threw, I remember throwing my son off at one point, he, he was hitting off the tee and he, he'd, he'd lean in and I watch his approach. And when he started the swing, I was already running. He's like, I don't understand like how, you know, where I'm hitting the ball. I was like, well, I can see where the ball is pitched and I could see the angle of your bat. So before you hit it, I, I know where you're going. So, so he, you know, that was what I learned. And, and so that was important to, apply every pitch and that's what Pearsall taught me every pitch I don't care where the ball is hit you're running somewhere you're backing up the right fielder on a ball off the wall you're backing up second base I mean I was always on the go and so I am I have a critical eye of outfielders that spectate right right fielder balls hit off the center field wall and they're just watching I'm like where are you dude like you need to be backing up because it ricochets right. off of Fenway you know boom it's could be four bases so yeah, um, yeah so well, one story that told me how old I was was two spring spring training, not this one, the year before 2020. I go to call, you know, the Cubs. I'm doing some work for um, Marquee Sports. And uh, uh, Albert Armoria Jr. is, we're doing this feature on him. And it's a demo feature. So I'm throwing the ball and he's running. We're talking. So I go into this long explanation on how I got jumps back in the day. And I said, okay, the ball's hit. I'm leaning. Da, 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 I, I say, and I go, it's, it's very elaborate, very excited. So I want to hear how he does it. <laughs> and and instead of him telling me this beautiful story about jumps and scouting, he says, well, it's kind of weird because I don't really need to do all that because I'm already there. I was like, well, what do you mean you're already? He's like, well, in the, when the scouting reports, they put me where the ball is hit. So if I do all that running and jumping stuff, I'm running away from the spot where the ball is most likely going to be hit. So I, I don't do that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Yeah, nowadays, uh, you got the laminated uh, card in the cap and, and right. you don't Just have to play. do all that stuff. Right. You play here. So you're right. if you're doing running and leaning, you're actually going away from the spot that they're more likely to hit it. 
So uh, that was a little shocking, but uh, I don't think it takes away from your reads and your ability to get no. the the extra sense. But that that's sort of what we're at, where we are now about the detailed type of data. But um, but it was a cat and mouse game, and that was one of the favorite parts of the game for me. Yeah, and, and for me too, and that's why I, I find it so interesting to hear you talk about it because it's kind of what I love about the game. And and look, there's still a place for that in the game, the guys. Not everybody does it, but they're the guys that do do it are the better are the better fielders for sure, because, uh, you know, you can only do so much data at the end of the day, round bat, round ball, you know, it's going to go where it goes and you're going to have to have a sense for for being able to track it down. And I, I don't think we see that enough anymore. But uh, all right. Before I let you go, I know you're you've got lots of projects going on. Um, I, I talked about you being an author. The game from where I stand uh, is your is your book. Uh, it's a terrific read. And now you have another project uh, that I understand called uh, Class in Session. Tell us a little bit about Class in Session. What's happening with that? Yeah, I love that. Well, um, what's well, called yeah, classes in session. And we uh, kind of came up with it through I'm doing it for Marquee Sports Network, which is sort of the Cubs network. Mm -hmm. And you know, it started because in the last particularly two years, I mean, I've always written about the intersection of sport and society. I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. It was a town that voluntarily desegregated. Sports was a way to connect, to bring people together. And I always saw the power in sports. And I always felt like you shouldn't shut up and dribble because you have so many lessons to offer, many of which are allowing us to see each other in each other, right, as, as teammates. So I've always celebrated that intersection and, and challenged us to think through our society at large through the lens of, of sports. And baseball, of course, is at center. So the mm -hmm. show is kind of the culmination of these ideas where I take on various issues that are confronting us. And it could be something like the, like this most recent issue is about the draft and, and how it's changed over the years. So I had Arn Tellum, I had Ruben Amaro Jr., I had Kevin Weeks from the NHL. Um, so I bring in these guests and we, and it's really like a classroom. We, in a fun way, I just kind of, they're more like guest lecturers and I have banter with them, but they just teach us about the insider look on different aspects of the sport, sporting world that connects to a larger society. And, uh, and that's what I love about it because it's really about understanding. It's about tying people together. So that's project's been great. And it is a little kind of an extension of my book and, I teach a course at University of Connecticut called Sport and Society. And so that's where a lot of these ideas come from. And now every day sports is at the center. I mean, you see what's happening with Simone Biles. And I mean, that, I mean, it's amazing. So I never run out of content, <laughs> so, <laughs> no. uh, but I really love it. And, and I just want to elevate the best of us through sports because I see sport as a great example of coming together, of, of unifying, of also of, of fairness and equity, because we are, we do care about the rules and that it's enforced fairly to everyone. I, I believe those are two great examples for the rest of us in society, a larger society. And, and so why not celebrate that? Why not challenge us through that, that through that experience? Well, you know, I can, I know I, I speak for a lot of people for, for those of us that watched you play in Philadelphia, you played with that passion and excitement. And now we hear it in your, in your projects. Now, just listening to you to answer that last question, you, you can see how much it means to you, how excited you are, uh, which is what, what makes it so good. It made you a great player and it makes you uh, you know, great after uh, your career is over with all the other stuff you're doing. So uh, we certainly appreciate it. I knew this would be fun. I really uh, appreciate you taking a couple minutes with us, Doug, and, and 
sharing your glove stories and, uh, you know, reminding us of that period of Phillies baseball that uh, you were a part of. Uh, they, they were some fun days. They weren't, weren't always winning days, but they were some fun days. And uh, it was fun to listen to. So we really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Marv. I, I'm thankful every day for the chance to play in Philadelphia. You know, college town, team I love growing up. Uh, just being part of a great group, a family organization, family business, and the fans, although tough, knowledgeable, fair, I, I just, uh, I, it was a great challenge, you know, to to take on Philadelphia, and I feel like I got such great rewards from it, and and I think I'm, I'm happy to try to represent Philadelphia, that experience, the Phillies in this, in the larger world now that yeah. I've been retired for so, so long, so uh, I'm going to keep that going with the Philly pride and, and, uh, look forward to continuing to engage Philadelphia and the fans and, and Murph, hopefully we'll do this again sometime. Absolutely. It's a perfect partnership and, uh, we absolutely will do it again. Uh, Doug Glanville, thank you so much for being here and sharing your glove stories with me. And, uh, thanks to the folks at park casino Sportsbook app and red Robin as well. Uh, more glove stories with Murph coming up right after this. So stay with us. Glove stories with Murph is presented by parks, casino sportsbook app. New users download an app store or click parkscasino.com slash PA and use the promo code MONEY for first bet risk-free up to $500. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Glove Stories with Murph is brought to you by Red Robin. Whether you're hungry for a juicy gourmet burger with bottomless steak fries and an ice cold beer or a crispy chicken tender salad and freckled lemonade, whatever you crave, there's something for everyone at Red Robin. So dine in or order curbside to go, delivery or catering. Order online now at order.redrobinpa.com. Welcome back to Glove Stories with Murph, brought to you by the Parks Casino Sportsbook app. And today we're talking with the skipper of the 2008 Fight and Fills, Charlie Manuel joins us now to uh, relive one of those, uh, another one of those games in the 2008 season. Charlie, this one was Phillies versus Padres, August 17th. We're in the dog days of summer, August 17th, 2008. You guys were out in San Diego playing at Petco Park. And uh, well, after being up two and a half games in the NL East at the beginning of August, things kind of went south for your team in a hurry. And by August 17th, by this game, you had lost eight of 12 at that point, including back-to-back walk-off losses to the Dodgers and found yourself two games out of first place in the NL East. What do you remember about that uh, that streak in early August where you guys were not playing good baseball? Was there any panic in your clubhouse at that point? You know what, uh, Murph? No, there was not no panic. Panic, really. I mean, we, we stayed the course, and we stayed focused on what we were doing. And, yeah, you know, like in, in – and when we were when we were in this stretch right here, and we when we lost eight or twelve, you know, like uh, our bullpen was having problems, and also too we uh, a lot of times when uh, the, what happens you know early in the game that you know like that kind of uh, takes you into your bullpen, and sometimes you I call it getting out of whack, okay. and you, you know like and and uh, but we were struggling down the bullpen and. Uh, you know, like when uh, the Dodgers had uh, just beat us two, uh, in two games in extra innings, I think, or something, or close games. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and we we were having a hard time. But uh, this game right here, this was a game where I, I th- think to myself, you know, like when we over in, uh, with the Padres, we got to win some games. 
And you know, like, but we stayed the course and I'll tell you something, we did not ever think that we were not going to win. Yeah. And I, you know, and there's a lot of, obviously, you know, this uh, in Philadelphia and, and elsewhere, obviously in professional sports, there's a lot of outside um, influences that may cause some strife. You know, certainly right. I'm sure at this point, the media was thinking, okay, this team doesn't have what it takes and uh, you know, they need to make a move or, you know, the trade deadline probably had passed at this point. So uh, you were, you had the squad that you were going to go to, to war with, but um yeah you guys pretty much circled the wagons and said, all right, you know, we're only two and a half games back. We've got this kind of thing. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's just, um, we were, we were staying the course and nothing came up. A lot of times, the only time that I can remember, you know, like if we lost four or five games in a row or something, you know, like somebody would, somebody would just out of the blue say, Hey, look guys, they, they, we're not going there no more. This, this stops right here. I remember we'd talk, be talking and somebody would just say that to anybody yeah. really. It's say, hey, look, we've had enough. It's time for us to get back on course. And really, you know, like we and we were very good at playing out what I call the game, playing the whole twenty-seven outs out. And we would stay with you, and and we kind of had a feel like that we were going to get you over a course of of uh, nine innings. And 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 there again, it gets back to what we had on our team and who we had. Yeah, yeah, and who you had was uh, well, obviously a great core in in uh, you know Chase and, and Ryan and Jimmy and those guys. But you also had a guy who probably doesn't get enough credit for his leadership in Pat Pearl that season. Pat Pat was a guy who would address the room or address a particular guy if something needed to be said. Right? He was a guy. I'll tell you something. He became a leader on our team. Hey, he was a guy that would step up and and and, and kind of hit it in gear when we we're supposed to you know, like really, really get going, Yeah, you know, like yeah. when we really dig in and go get it. And yeah, he, he was definitely uh, vocal in, in, the, in the locker room. You're like in that manner. Yes. Well, you had Cole Hamels on the mound in this particular game as well. It was the final game of a three game series in San Diego. And, and, you know, San Diego is a place he pitched very well. I mean, he obviously knows San Diego well, that's where he's from. So uh, he was really starting. I mean, he was terrific his entire career with the Phillies, but he was really hitting a stride late in the 2008 season. Um, What do you, what did Cole mean to this team? I mean, it's so helpful to have a true ace, a guy that you can hand the baseball to and stop just about any losing streak, right? Yeah, uh, Cole was, uh, I call Cole a pitcher rest hitter. I mean, pitcher. You know, like when his stuff is going, he's so smooth and he had mm-hmm. a great change up. He had a change of control, change him off his fastball. And, and re- he really, you know, like and the hitters really had a hard time, you know, uh, timing it down and things. But he was our, he was our, he was our best pitcher. He was our best starter. And he, and he did come into his own, you know, like uh, just by getting his work in and making his starts, you know, like that's how he broke into the big legs. I, yeah. I think consistency played a big part in Cole and the fact that he got better as he went along. And he, I, I would say at, at this time, Cole Hamels was in one of his better stretches. Yeah. Really. Yeah. He was actually, he was actually pitching very well, but uh, for whatever reason, the team was not playing well behind him for a stretch. The, the team had lost four of his last five starts, but only yeah. in one of those starts did Cole pitch poorly. Uh, he, yeah. he pitched two and two thirds innings and one of those games gave up nine runs, but the other four games, he pitched well, but the team did not play well. And he ended up on the, uh, on the losing side of a couple of those games, but 
This particular night, he was uh, feeling it, and and that was what mm-hmm. you guys needed. You Philly scored first in the top of the first. Rollins led off with a single, stole second, moved to third on an error. Jason Worth hit a fly ball to score him one nothing. Manufacturing runs, get it on, get one on the board early in that one. Uh, you guys could do the, do it with the long ball, but you also did it fundamentally sound as as well. Move a runner over, steal a base, move up on an error, get the sack fly right. Exactly. That's, you know, like when you look at our team, uh, we had so many weapons from an off- offensive standpoint, you could never ever count us out of a game because yep. we not only could we win close games, but we could come from far back sometime and get you. And, uh, you know, like and that that's a tribute to what kind of team you got and the players, of course. Yep. And uh, we were at good, but uh, Hamels, you know, like when, when Hamels is on, you know, like he, he could do it, you know, like, and he, and like I said, he, he came, became very consistent with us and, uh, we don't, uh, we don't win the world series if, if we didn't have Cole Hamels. No doubt about it. And he pitched some big games that year, probably the biggest games he ever pitched in his life. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. And, and, and up to this moment, this might've been the biggest game he pitched of the season uh, so far because of what we talked about, the team right. not playing well, uh, he not, not getting wins with the team playing behind him. Um, he didn't do, he did everything he could in this game to keep you guys in it. You didn't have a whole lot of offense, but it was just one of those games that was so important. Top of the sixth, one out. Pat Burrell hits a home run, makes it 2 nothing, and Hamels continues to pitch brilliantly. He allowed one run in the sixth on three straight singles, but he went eight innings, and he yeah. scattered seven hits in those eight innings. Exactly what you needed from your ace pitcher. And if you look at his numbers for the rest of the season going forward, this start really did seem to be a catalyst for him, and he took it right in through the postseason. I totally agree with what you're saying because you like, uh, and not only that, but it seemed like uh, it seemed like our rotation got very organized, and our and, and our guys could make the turns. And at the end of the year, we we we've we've all talked about this. I know I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves, but at the end of the year, not only did Hamill's pitching set up set was set set up our team, but it would prepare us and, and it kept us in the right order that we wanted it. Yeah. And, and Hamels had something had a big thing to do with that. And not only Hamels ledge did too. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting <laughs> you say that. Cause I don't know that the, the, you know, just the casual fan thinks about how important that is. I mean, there's a reason why you Good. set your rotation the way you set it and injuries can upset that, but guys scuffling can upset that guys not being able to go deep into games can upset all of those things matter. So when guys are doing their jobs, it keeps you with the plan that you had set that you think, all right, this is the way we're going to get to the postseason. This is the way we're going to get to the world series. And you guys were able to do that through the back end of 08. Exactly. That, um, to me, that's exactly what happened, really. I mean, it, and it happened in our way. I mean, you know, like uh, we had a good team, we played hard and things like that and good things happened for us. And that's what happens to teams that, that you know, like love to play and that, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and playing together and everything like that goes with it. But yeah, we had, uh, we had guys on our team actually that uh, they could handle the moment. I mean, and, and, sure uh, they, and they definitely proved that. And yeah. And, Managing these teams, Murph, I've said before, believe me, they it was it wasn't hard. It was great. <laughs> uh, now you're selling yourself short. You, we, it, there was a manager on this team that could handle the moment as well, yeah. and we saw that uh, we saw that time and time again. Uh, Brad Lidge came in. He struck out uh, the side in the ninth, locked it down for you guys to get the win. But 
let me point this out before we say goodbye. Phillies were scuffling while you were scuffling. The Mets, they were playing good baseball. They had just won 14 of their last 17 games. They had taken over sole possession of first place at the time. They were 18 and 8 in July and 18 and 11 in August. So the New York Mets were playing well. Florida had started to fade. And all of a sudden, they remember what you did to them in 2007, and they wanted paybacks in September in 2008. I can guarantee it. And uh, it set up uh, it set up what was a really, really special yeah. September for sure. Yeah, I, I, Murph, I tell you, really, like once we once we got down toward you know, like in, in, the end of August, and we had we had, we had not played really great in August. Right. And I when and but I looked. Back then, too, I, was, I studied the schedule more than I did the scores on the scoreboard, believe me. And the ske- our schedules, when I looked at it, we still – we had we, we, we had our own fate in our hands as far as if we played good and, and win because we were playing in our league enough yes. you know, like to, to gain ground and, you know, like, and, 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 and stay in there. So yeah. you know, like, yep. uh, from that point on, you know, like we had to play good baseball. But if you remember – it seemed like our bullpen at, at, at going into September really tightened up. I mean, we got we got and also too our bullpen was run. We could we could use Romero the right way. We could use Matson in the right role. Lidge was still you know hot and doing it and things like that. And that makes all the difference in the world. And also it helps the starter. Our offense no and our bullpen definitely uh, you know played a big role in helping our starters pitch. I believe well, that. You know, and, and when you stop to think about it, so we're midway through August, uh, just finishing up this game, and September's right around the corner. And uh, to your point, we didn't know it at the time, but it was beginning to turn around for you. All all facets yeah. of the game were beginning to turn around, and it was going to make for one uh, hell of a September. And we're going to talk about that uh, yeah. later on uh, on the podcast. So, uh, yeah. But for now, Charlie, uh, thanks so much for being with us. Always fun yeah. to think right. back about, uh, about these games. I'm excited to see what's going to happen yeah. in September, see how this all turns out, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, me too. Really. Yeah. All right. Char- Charlie you, Manuel joining us here on Glove Stories with Murph. Uh, we'll be right back. Glove Stories with Murph is brought to you by Red Robin. Whether you're hungry for a juicy gourmet burger with bottomless steak fries and an ice cold beer or a crispy chicken tender salad and freckled lemonade, whatever you crave, there's something for everyone at Red Robin. So dine in or order curbside to go, delivery or catering. Order online now at order.redrobinpa.com. Glove Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app. New users download an app store or click parkscasino.com slash PA and use the promo code MONEY for first bet risk-free up to $500. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Love Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app and Red Robin and is a production of SBC Media Partners. The engineer for Glove Stories is Chad Evans. Cindy Webster is our marketing and guest relations director, and our executive producer is Roger Haddon. Whether you are watching us on YouTube or downloading the podcast from one of our major podcast providers like Apple, Google, or Spotify, make sure to hit like and subscribe so that we can let you know when a new episode of Glove Stories is available. We'll release new episodes weekly throughout the 2021 Major League Baseball season.